All right, let's pray. Father God, we are um, tempted to become a wreck by looking in at ourselves through what you've taught here in this sermon. So I pray that we would remember, even in the midst of conviction, that there is hope in Jesus, there is help in Jesus, there is grace and mercy from your hand in Jesus. So we thank you for your patience, your loving kindness, your uh, understanding what we face, and not excusing it, but helping us to overcome it. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us with the power of your Spirit as we understand more of these things. We ask that you would help us understand. We ask that you would uncover in us any unclean way and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we ask mostly that through all this you be glorified, that people get the aroma of Christ, that people see Christ through the Spirit's work in our lives to shun such things that are natural to sinful humans. Father, help us to not look at these things in a legalistic way, um, but to understand them in the power of the Spirit, to live free. So set us free today and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You see there on the screen what we're dealing with today. And I don't have to tell you, but this is probably one of the most pervasive sins, one of the most excused sins in our culture, but certainly to all mankind, this is something that has plagued us in the perversion of intimacy since the beginning. The uh, problems of lust in the flesh, which take dramatic and harmful terms or turns, are nothing new to the world, nothing new to any culture or kingdom or place. This is, this is something that sinful humanity is prone to. For instance, in 2018, there was a survey on pornography use. And of those surveyed, 73% of women and 98% of men had confessed to viewing pornography within the past six months. Those are large numbers. If you put those together, that's an average of 85% of people surveyed had used pornography in that amount of time. This is a multi-billion dollar industry in this nation. But it's not just unique to this place in this time. If you look at Corinth in the Bible, this was a place that not only would rival maybe the red light district in Amsterdam, but it would overcome it. It was a place, some places in Corinth, you could not, walk with your children, or you should not walk down the street because of things that were seen 
out in the open. The perversion of the intimate relationship that God created between a man and a woman in the marriage covenant has crippled families and societies, has brought about wars, has caused all sorts of destruction from the beginning. Now, it is easy for Jesus' first century listeners and the Jewish leaders to point to themselves as images of purity in these fears because they don't commit adultery. They don't take another's wife or husband, and so they should be looked at, right, as the pure people, except for the fact that they're not. Because as Jesus has done with anger, so he's going to do with lust, and he's going to reveal that even that from the heart, from, the, from that beginning spot, is where you break the commandments, is where you break the law. That by the time you see it played out amongst yourselves, the law was already broken way before that. So then, as I'm asking the Lord to do through this, he would, he would reveal to us where we can, quote unquote, nip these things in the bud. We, we can understand where Jesus wants to do work in our life. We can understand also that as uh, we fall prey to these things, there's grace and there is power to overcome these things. In Sunday school, we were looking at the Puritans on conscience, these, these uh, forefathers of ours who lived in the 1600s and 1700s and revealed to us how to live according to the word of God. Not in a legalistic way like the Pharisees and Sadducees where we just outwardly don't do things, but where we get into the, the, the nitty-gritty to the, to the roots of where these things take hold and deal with them there. So the Puritans were great practitioners of applying the Bible to the hearts of people, dealing with what's going on in here. They understood themselves not as Puritans, understand that. They understood themselves as sinful human beings who were prone to all sorts of lust and anger and, and covetousness and all sorts of stuff. What, what makes them unique and why we call them Puritans is because they knew those things about themselves and they sought to do battle with the Word of God in there. And in doing that, these things are never named among them. But they're understanding that there's a constant battle to fight. And when it comes to lust, there's a constant battle to fight. That's just the reality of who we are. And you can trace it all the way back even to the Garden of Eden and the curse in Genesis 3.16 on the woman, right? where basically God says there's going to be strife now between you and the man. You're going to seek to have mastery over him, where that's not the created order, and he's going to dominate you, sometimes tyrannically. And then you see that played out in lustful ways, where, where human beings will use this against one another to either get what they want or to dominate another person. 
It is not love. To take from somebody selfishly that which you want and treat them as an object. So we're trying to get to the heart of the issue with lust here. And sometimes it's a sensitive thing. It's not something you talk about, right? It's not something that is too often public. It's too often a secret sin for people. But we are after, right, being presented to the Lord Jesus as a holy, blameless bride. You know, I think there was a point in church history in America where you kind of had to work to be countercultural. You kind of had to think of ways in which you would look different than the culture. It was, it was so uh, melded together. The, the, the morality of both the church and, and the country was seemingly the same. Nowadays, you don't really have to work at it. You come to church, you're already being countercultural. But you don't have to dress different. You don't have to, you know, prohibit this and that to be countercultural. You have to be a person who proclaims that there's problems in here that the Lord Jesus is dealing with and he must deal with in order for me to live a pure and righteous life that glorifies him and keeps me from trouble. So in conversations that you have nowadays, uh, with coworkers or, or family members, you'll notice that oftentimes they're wanting to go into the explicit, into the lustful. Even married people are going to want to make comments about other people. I had a, a good friend who was recently on a business trip with some of his um, peers. These were married men. And, and the comments they would make and the things that they would point out and the things that they would do, of course, made him very uncomfortable, but they were very comfortable um, forsaking their marriage covenant by doing those things. But they didn't understand that that's what they were doing. They weren't committing adultery. So as if they look, if they make comments, that's okay. And so my friend has the opportunity in that, in that point in time to proclaim something different. To speak about a, a love and a desire for a, his wife and only his wife that comes from his heart. That those things forsake her. Those comments, those looks, those meditations of the mind forsake the covenant. That Jesus is after the whole person. Right? He's not after a, a group of religious people who simply stay away from things. He wants you to stay away from things but he doesn't want you to want certain things. That's the problem we're dealing with here. Is, is we're trying to sort out these desires which were from birth and formed by the flesh instead of by the Spirit, instead of by the Word of God. Now, if you're born again, you are on this path of having all your desires, all your thoughts informed by the Spirit. Your conscience uh, convicted and and grown and formed by the Word of God. And here's what the Word of God says, Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yikes. So he dealt with anger, in light of the commandment to not murder, and he's dealing with lust in light of the commandment to not commit adultery. 
And he's taking them to an extreme that will immediately cause all his hearers and subsequent hearers to understand that they are guilty before the law of God. So he's doing that, but he's also doing this. He's creating a holy people, a royal nation, and that comes from a people whose heart is pure. Who, who doesn't look at people as objects that can meet their selfish desires, but looks at people as God does. What do they need for their help? Not what can they do for me that meets my desire in the moment. So let's put this in light of marriage. If marriage is God's design from the beginning, one man, one woman... That's why he created them, to complement and fulfill roles in such a way that he would be glorified, that even the gospel would be proclaimed, as we read in Ephesians 5. Then we need to understand how we approach it. How does God approach covenant relationship with us? So think of it this way. A desire for the opposite sex, or even the same sex, out of a lust or or is a, out of lust is a selfish desire to get from that other person what meets your immediate supposed fleshly needs or desire for pleasure or desire for satisfaction or desire for whatever if they can do that for me if i can take that from them that's a that's a desire of lust that is selfish and objectifies that other person as simply an object that can meet your needs. But a desire to marry a person of the opposite sex in a godly intent is a desire to set, as the Song of Solomon calls, a seal of love or a banner of love over that person to meet their needs, deepest needs, spiritually, emotionally, physically, to build them up, to give them constant, faithful Love, it's a selfless desire to bless and to seek someone else's good before our own. That is the right intent to have towards the opposite sex when thinking of marriage. And yes, we do have to couch that typical desire under the covenant of marriage. Because outside of that, the Bible gives gives no license to practice this gift of God, sexual intimacy, outside of marriage. And it's not because he's trying to hide good things from us. If you believe that, you're believing the lie of Satan, just like he does in the garden with Adam and Eve. Hey, he doesn't want you to eat that apple because he knows that you'll have this, that you'll be like God. So he's hiding something from you. If you give in to lust, that's kind of what you're believing. That God is withholding something good from you. That is never the case. It, you know, when I think of lust, I think of Proverbs. Because Proverbs is Solomon giving wisdom to his son. And how he speaks of ignorance and foolishness and destruction he always, he always kind of um, personifies it as this forbidden woman. 
And he always con confronts his son to stay away from the house of the forbidden woman. Because she'll lure you in and devour you like a lion. I, I want to look at Proverbs 6.32 real quick. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And then you get to Proverbs 7, and that's basically all about the forbidden woman. Proverbs 7, starting in verse 10, he says, Behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Now, what's to come of this? Verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. When I was in Africa, we were in a busy uh, city at one point. And, you know, there's lots of movement, you know, lots of people kind of in a dense, crowded area, lots of motorcycles going by and all this sort of stuff. And my professor leaned over to me and he, and he whispered, and he said, look over there. And I was like, what am I looking at? And there was a woman dressed in red. And she was just standing against the wall. And she became very easy to see because everyone was moving so fast, and she's the only person standing still. And he said, do you know who that is? And I was like, I don't know. Am I is she famous? I don't know. Who is she? And he's like, that's a prostitute. And he pointed out that, that she is like the forbidden woman. She is waiting. She is standing there waiting, waiting for someone to devour and, and she will get somebody soon enough, and she'll drag them in to her home, and she'll take their money, and she'll take their dignity, and she'll take their purity. There is no fruit in that lust. It will destroy you. Look at 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11.2. This is David. This is what happened to David. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. I mean, if David can see her, then she's not really being concealed. Is, is he doing anything wrong? Yes. Because we understand the story of David. He looked upon her, and it's not like he accidentally saw her, maybe at first, but then he stayed. 
he stayed in lust. And the lust gave birth to a desire. And that desire gave birth to the sin that was committed. And then subsequently, a couple people end up dying from that. Her husband dies because David has created this chaos drama now by taking Bathsheba. And then their child that was born out of that adultery dies. So there is no fruit to come from such things. That is not what God created to be good in intimacy. You see fruit come from the intimacy of a marriage relationship that is healthy. You see a one flesh union that literally leads to one flesh, a, a, a human being that that comes from you and your wife, you and your spouse. And you also see what Ephesians 5 tells us, if you and your wife are in Christ, the greatest thing to come from that marriage, that covenant, that, that, that promise to one another, that steadfastness, you see a proclamation of the gospel. You see a redemption of the curse. Genesis 3.16 gets destroyed in a marriage where Jesus inhabits the hearts of both the man and the woman. The man acts as and proclaims as and loves as Christ to the wife who acts as the church and lovingly submits to the leadership, the servant leadership of her husband. And there you have an explanation of this gospel picture and action. So marriage becomes the illustration, the temporary illustration that points people to the gospel. And when people are pointed to the gospel, what happens? They're given new life. They're given eternal hope. They're given promise. That's what we want. When you go into a prostitute, you don't proclaim to anything to anybody other than you had a desire that you wanted met. But when you cultivate that type of intimacy in marriage, you end up proclaiming the gospel. That's what we're after. So Jesus said, hey, the lustful intent, you've done it. You've done it. So married men and women, I hope that your moments, your temptations to lust are quickly confronted with the fact that you are disdaining your marriage covenant. And if you love that man or that woman that you have been uh, betrothed to, married to, then you will quickly flee from that lust, quickly flee from that desire in honor of the other person, in love for self to not see you destroyed or bring destruction, and mostly in honor of God, who gave you something good, and for you to pervert it is to spit on his good gifts and to proclaim that you know better when you don't. This is what Joseph understood when he was tempted with Potiphar's wife. His response was not, I really like Potiphar, I don't want to do this to him. 
which may have been true. But his response was that if he did this thing, he would be sinning against God, and that's not okay. So you love your spouse enough to flee from these lustful intents and thoughts, but do you love God enough? That's the motivation that will get you through these things. Because he sees, you, you, you can hide your lustful thoughts from your spouse, but you can't hide them from God. He sees, he knows, he recognizes every thought, every desire, every word before it, before it meets your lips. So do you seek to honor him? And, and here, here's the grace part, right? He knows all this, and he is gracious and merciful. When, when you have a lustful thought, you're breaking the law of God, which makes you the, a, a complete lawbreaker. But if you've been justified in Christ, he is ready to help you overcome that. Not just to forgive you of that one instant and move on. He'll do that. But he's leading you to overcome these things. You know, if you ask God for eyes that only desire your spouse, he'll give it to you. Because it's his will that you be pure from the heart in these things. So ask him for what you need. He'll give it to you. And also, the more you grab a hold of the gospel, the more that you actually learn what love is, not only to your spouse, but to, the, to other people, the more you learn to see the way that God sees, people start uh, not becoming objects to you. They start becoming people created in the image of God. that you have the opportunity to bless in Jesus. That you have the opportunity to help, maybe. They're not objects for you. That's why in God's economy, in the kingdom, the, the characteristic, one of the main characteristics of his people is that they're selfless, humble, seeking others' good before their own. That completely destroys uh, lustful intent and desire. So you have to see people like God sees them. And that only comes from looking at, meditating on, thinking about how he sees people. And by recognizing who you are, and how desperate you are for him to help you. So what do you do about these things? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So with the eye, one looks meditates lustfully on these things, and with the hand, you act it out. And he said, if, if, if you can't keep yourself from those things, 
then get rid of the faculties that cause you trouble. You have to be that serious about it. Not, you, you can't be cavalier even with your thoughts. Romans 12, take every thought captive. James says it this way. James 1.13 says it, says it this way, through verse 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You sin because you want to. So you have to want something more than that desire to sin. What could you want more than that? I would argue that the more you see of the beauty and the glory of God, the more that overcomes every sinful desire in your heart. You know how you do that? He just gave you a book to read that proclaims his glories and his excellencies in the most beautiful ways, in ways that you can memorize them, in ways that you can meditate on them, and easily accessible ways in our culture where you can open your phone, you can open this book, you can put it in your uh, AirPods, you can do all that stuff, and God reveals to you what is greater, what the psalmist says is sweeter than honey, and more valuable than much fine gold. Knowing God. And I'm using that intimate word for knowing that the Bible uses. Being drawn closer to close and closer to him in an intimate relationship to where you see more and more of his beauty and are more and more transformed into the image of his son who loves him perfectly and completely without end and therefore obeys him perfectly and completely Without end. You become like Jesus the more that you love God. Jesus wasn't tempted with lust. He had no lustful thoughts or desires. Because he loved God first and saw people differently. Not as objects, but as lost sheep. So much that he had compassion on them. He didn't take things from them. He gave everything to us. And his desire for that left no room for any sinful desire in him whatsoever. Let's listen to a couple of the apostles tell us how to deal with the sins of the flesh. In 1 Peter, Peter is telling exiles who've been scattered for their faith, persecuted for their faith, he's focusing more on not getting out of exile, but on becoming a holy people. So in verse 11 of 1 Peter in chapter 1, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Why? 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, that they may be saved to where they are awaiting his coming along with you because they saw that you valued something more than meeting the desires of your flesh. Because what we learn from the fall in the garden is that now our flesh has desires that are contrary to God. They're perverted, sinful desires. Every one of us has them. And we still wage war against them while we're in the flesh. Until one day when we're glorified at his coming. Until then, you are being made holy. There's a process to where these things are being rooted out and they're replaced with a great righteous desire for God. That's how you destroy lust. You look at him. Isn't it funny how all of this stuff gets cleaned up and destroyed simply by looking at him? I'm always amazed at how, glory, how glorification happens for us in heaven. It appears as though it just like magically happens. You get to heaven, you're glorified. Why? You know why? Because you see face to face, 1 Corinthians tells us, the glory of God in the face, like literal face, of Jesus Christ. And all of the old things pass away. It's like they melt under that red hot intense glory of his goodness. Everything's stripped away. All your suffering becomes worth it. All your uh, lustful, evil desires become nothing compared to what you're witnessing. The, the perfect view of God makes you perfect. And we don't see perfectly right now. We see dimly in a mirror. So we're still struggling. But we're going to see perfectly and then be made perfect. 1 John 2.16 Starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things of in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You have to put everything in perspective when you're dealing with sin. Is this sin going to give life to me or the other person? Is this a desire that, that God wants? Is this a desire that will bear fruit? In other words, it'll bring good to the world, good to people, glory to God? Or is this just me and what I want? Paul tells the Corinthians, as I mentioned them earlier, there was hardly a place that was more sexually immoral than Corinth.
And he's kind of couching this passage in the idea that you're joined to Christ, that that one union marriage that we see between man and woman is, is more perfectly seen as you, as the church comes to be one with Christ. And he says, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you understand, Christian, that you are housing the Holy Spirit of the living sovereign God, if you take time to meditate on that, that will undoubtedly change how you view desires, what you do with thoughts. Think about the illustration that God gives in Hosea when he told Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And then Gomer leaves him after having children. She goes again to the auction block of prostitution. And you think, well, I mean, that's the end of that, right? But what does God tell Hosea to do? He says, go again and get her. Not only get her, but buy her back. Go into that awful place in the city where they're doing this. And as her rightful husband, pay money to get her off the chopping block, so to speak. Because she belongs to him. And, and her identity is supposed to be seen in that relationship. She's not a prostitute anymore. She's Hosea's wife. She's part of a relationship that glorifies God. And, and Hosea is to make sure that she comes to understand that. Along with a whole host of other gospel proclamations that are intended for that scene. But, but the example that I'm using now is for you to see that if you belong to God, then these lustful desires or, or hateful desires that we saw last week are not a part of Him. And if they're not a part of Him, then why are they a part of you? And you'll give the excuse, well, I'm just a human, I'm, I'm just fleshly, I'm, I'm just a sinner. Yeah, but you're being made into his image. So flee. Run. Run to him. Those things have nothing for you. You don't need to stay and fight them. You need to run away from them. The closer you get to God, the, the easier that they will be destroyed. So go to him. Let focus be on him. you're probably thinking, man, this pastor just thinks everything will be solved if I just read my Bible and, and look to Jesus. Yeah, I do. I do. And the more we embrace that idea, the more that you'll see that's actually true. Because I'll always return to this. 
2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is trying to blind the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they'll try and blind you with a beautiful woman on a rooftop. They'll try and blind you with thinking that you have the right to be angry towards somebody who has offended you. They'll try and blind you to say that, hey, the desire you have, it's, it, God made you, you know, it's good. Why would God not want you to feel good or have good things? And we know by now that the opposite is true. He withholds no good thing from us to him who loves him. So yes, look to Jesus and let those lustful moments serve as a reminder to look to him. Preach this to yourself. He's better. He's better. Of course, you should look at your spouse as better, right? But he's better. That's what destroys that. So respond to him now, and then we'll stand and sing.